This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 24. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. My name's Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, just now, after uh, Art read Psalm 24, uh, he stated, this is the word of the Lord. And we responded with thanks be to God. This might be something new to some of you. Some of you might understand why we do this. Um, but we believe that when we gather here on Sunday, or really any time, but when we open this book, the Bible, we believe that God is speaking, right? We believe that he has spoken and is still actively speaking through his word. So we want to acknowledge that when we gather. These aren't just mere words on a page, but this is actually God's, uh, God's speaking to us. So we want to acknowledge that. So by proclaiming, art proclaimed, this is the word of the Lord, and then we respond with thanks be to God, thanking God that he has spoken and is speaking to us. Um, and then when I get up here, or Brian, or Nick, or anybody else gets up here, our goal is really just to open up this, this Bible, this word, and just explain what it says, to really bring as few of our own ideas and thoughts to the table as possible, and really um, listen and try to get everyone to listen uh, to what God is saying to us. So that's, what, that's my goal today. That's what I'm going to try to do, is just explain this psalm to us. Um, psalm 24 um, has a lot of good stuff in it. There's a lot we can learn about God. Um, we can learn who he is, some of his, his various roles um, in the world. We'll learn that he's the owner of everything, that he founded and established the earth and all that's in it, uh, that he's holy, that he's set apart, that he's the king, he's the king of glory, um, that he's strong and mighty, that he gives righteousness and salvation. It also gives us some insight into how we can know this God, how we can be with God, how we can stand with this God. And so again, my hope for today is um, that God's spirit would be working here in us. He would open our eyes uh, to see God for who he is. We often tend to, I think all of us tend to make God out um, kind of in our, either in our own image or just kind of we try to make our God into who we want him to be as opposed to looking at um, how he has told us that he is. And so my hope is this morning that we would all see God for who he is, not really for who we want him to be, and that we would see him as beautiful and good, and that we would desire his righteousness. Um, so let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into Psalm 24. Lord, we uh, yeah, first confess that we, uh, we need you this morning. We need you to be, to be working um, in us, speaking through me um, and speaking through your word, Lord. We're thankful that you have, you have spoken through your word. Lord, you haven't left us to guess and kind of try to navigate on our own who you are. 
um, but you have uh, clearly spoken to us, and I pray that you would just allow us to see that, see who you are, um, and to worship you rightly. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last time I preached, uh, several months ago, um, but we talked extensively about my Volkswagen Eurovan. I don't know if any of you guys are here for that, um, but if you, if you didn't, if you weren't here, it's not a big deal, but I, I have this, um, this 2002 Volkswagen Eurovan, and I, I love it. It's a really cool car. I won't get into all the details, but I, I get kind of obsessed with this. It's my second Eurovan, probably not my last, hopefully not. Um, but what a lot of you might not know is that this obsession that I have uh, is not just confined to my car. I've got kind of an obsessive, oddly obsessive personality, and often it kind of focuses in on things, on material things. And so even just in the past year or so, I made a list of things that I've been obsessed with. Um, so everything from my Eurovan. Before the Eurovan, it was Jeeps. Before we had kids, I was kind of consumed with Jeeps. Um, espresso machines, uh, barefoot running shoes, this watch, my Bible. Um, it, the list could really go on and on. Uh, cameras, lenses, drums, you name it. Um, I'll, I'll get kind of this, this idea that I need something, um, wh- wh- whether it's a new camera, and then I'll just spend the next several weeks or several months kind of being consumed with this idea, wanting this thing, um, doing countless hours of internet research, looking on Amazon, reading reviews, checking out Craigslist, trying to find a used one, talking to people that might have this thing that I'm looking for, and I get kind of consumed with it. Um, Both Brian, our our lead pastor, and Megan, my wife, have, um, in their really loving ways, commented how if I could kind of harness this obsession of mine into useful things, into significant things, that I would probably be a much better husband, father, and pastor. Um, But I'm still working on those things and trying to harness it, but I haven't done a very good job of that. Um, But I like to own things, right? I like to gather and kind of hoard things. I don't want to rent a movie. I want to buy a movie or download the movie and kind of own it. I don't want to borrow a book from a friend and read it. I want to buy the book and then read a couple chapters and put it on my shelf, let everyone think that I've read it. so I, I kind of have this weird urge to just collect things, to own things. And this behavior in me, I've, I've realized recently, exposes a false view of the world, uh, and more importantly, a false view of God and who he is. And in spending the last couple weeks in Psalm 24, I've, I've been reminded that in reality, I don't own anything. As hard as I try to kind of gather and own things, I really don't own anything. And David sets forth this picture in this psalm of a world that's owned completely by God. The earth and the Lord's or the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, which is also translated, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And then he kind of reiterates that by saying the world and those who dwell in it. Um, if, you, if you might have, if you didn't realize that you were included in everything, he, he reiterates and says that you are the Lord's as well. So God owns everything from big to small, from the Rocky Mountains to the iPhone that's in your pocket. Um, he owns the sunshine and the, the rain and the dreary days as well. Um, He owns you and me in every part of our lives. He owns your money. Your time is the Lord's. Your marriage, if you're married, is the Lord's. If you're single, your singleness belongs to the Lord. There's nothing outside of his ownership, right? And I want to just draw out three kind of implications of these first two verses of this psalm. The first one is God established the world and he holds the world together. So hopefully over these next couple minutes we'll get a, a big picture of who God is. And we see in Hebrews 1.3 that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we see God as an active God, right? He's holding all things together. He didn't just create the world and then kind of set it spinning 
and then stand back and watch um, passively. He's actively working in the world and in our lives. He holds it together. And so every day, every minute, every second, God is holding this world together, holding your life together. And that if his attention was turned away from us for even a second, uh, we would cease to exist. The Bible talks about God as our Father, which is a, a beautiful picture. And our fathers and just fathers on the earth are intended to reflect on some level who God is. Um, but there are some differences as well. So fathers on earth, typically we think of them ha- as having about 18 to 22 years with their kids, to father their kids, to really kind of do their work. And then the kids grow up, they graduate high school or college, and then hopefully the father has done a good job, kids an adult, making their own decisions. Um, and then even at the, at the end of our lives, most of our fathers are, are gone. They pass away before we do. So we don't even have them around near the end of our lives. But God, as our father, um, never stops working in our lives. He doesn't just kind of let us get to maturity and then, and then send us off. Um, he's working in your life. He's working in the world um, as much today as he was the day that you were born or maybe the day that you uh, begin to trust him. Um, he's actively working in us. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So God established the world, he established you and me, and he's actively working in the world and in you and me. That's the first point. The second one is that God has brought and is bringing order to the world. So in Psalm 24 it says, he has founded founded it, the world, upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. And this is very intentional language that David's using here. It didn't really make much sense to me at first. Um, and God's establishing the world, and he established it on the seas and the rivers, which I, I don't know, I didn't know why he said that. And then as I read some commentaries and whatnot, I realized, um, this is very significant, that in Canaanite mythology, the seas and the rivers represented kind of a threat to order. They represented chaos. And actually the words used for sea and for river here were the names of two Canaanite gods. Um, so in using this language, David is teaching us that God came with power and order, with kingship, right? He created the world and he created it to rule over as a king. So he's creating order out of chaos. And just as an aside, um, all of us, when we go to work, when we put our hands to work, um, we reflect what God is doing in the world. And so kind of the, the baseline fundamental purpose for work, kind of the, 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 what it starts with is that we are creating order out of chaos on some small level. And I talk to a lot of people who don't feel like their work is significant. They just work in a cube or they just sell some product that they don't care about. Um, but ultimately what we're doing with our hands when we go to work is reflecting what God is doing in the world. And if none of us showed up for work tomorrow, um, there would be a small level of chaos in the city. And then if the other two plus million people of Denver didn't show up for work, we'd have mass chaos in the city, right? So as we, as we do our small part, we, we, we reflect what God is doing in bringing order to chaos. Um, the third thing I wanted to talk about is that God establishes the rules. And so by rules, I don't mean just the list of um, what to do, what not to do, but that God created all things and he also established how they work. So whether, you, whether it's physical laws, moral laws, spiritual laws, natural laws, Um, Whatever lines we want to create in these things, I would say they're all the same. God created them all. He created how they all work. So he um, created the fact that when you drop something, it falls at a certain rate of speed, or if you stub your toe or bite your lip, it's going to hurt. 
Um, he created marriage and he created the rules as to how it works, that if I treat my wife well, if I love her, then my, my marriage is going to be fun. If I treat her poorly and neglect her, it's not going to be fun. So he's created kind of the, the ways that it works, not just the rules of what to do and what not to do. And so when it comes to moral laws, they're not arbitrary. Um, that he's given us gifts and then he's told us how to use those gifts. He said, here's sex, here's food, here's alcohol, here's money, here's work, here's whatever. Um, and this is how it should be used. This is how it's going to bring joy and happiness and fulfillment. This is where these things can bring life, satisfaction. This is where these things can bring death and dissatisfaction. And so in the midst of this, in the midst of a good God who's created everything, who gives us gifts, um, and in his wisdom um, instructs us how to use these, all of us have actively or passively um, told God that we don't believe him. Just uh, a picture in my head, came to my head of the way we treat our parents or our grandparents when they tell us something, we kind of feel like, you, you don't really get this generation. You're from a different generation. You don't really understand how this works. You don't know how relationships work nowadays. We say the same thing to God. We don't believe that he's smarter than us. We don't believe that he actually knows how the world works, and we choose our own way. We've said that even though God has said otherwise, we take things like our time or our money and say, you've said otherwise, God, but I believe that if I use my time or my money like this, it's going to bring joy and happiness. Or even though you've said otherwise, I believe if I use my sexuality like this, it's actually going to bring joy. I'm a, I'm a total night owl. I love the night. I, I struggle in the mornings. I'm always groggy. Joel um, and his family have moved in with us for a bit, and every morning I get up, and I kind of drag through the living room, and he's sitting there reading his Bible and drinking coffee, and I'll chip her, and I can barely keep my eyes open. He's been up for an hour. Um, but I stay up late, and I, I do it all the time, and it's um, a terrible habit. And so often, we'll get our kids to bed. Megan, she's a pretty early-to-bed person. She'll go to bed, and then I'll get like a second wind about 10 or 11 o'clock and um, get kind of wired. And so I'll put a movie on or do something completely non-productive. I never do any kind of work or study at night. I just want to do... Um, worthless things, and so, not that movies are worthless, but I'll put a movie on, and then I'll inevitably stay up until one o'clock, and then have to get up early in the morning and feel like junk the whole next day, and I have this internal dialogue with myself, right, that the morning side of, of Dan tells the nighttime side of Dan, like the party Dan, um, <laughs> like, please, please don't stay up late again, like, just grab a book and lay in bed and go to sleep at 10.15 or 10.30, um, but, but nighttime Dan is stubborn, and he just forgets He's got a short memory and doesn't really believe morning Dan when he tells him um, that you're being an idiot by staying up. God tells us what brings joy, right? He tells us um, what brings happiness in life. He tells us don't forsake fountains of living water for, for broken cisterns that hold no water. Yet we, we tend to choose our own way. We forget. We don't believe God. And in reading this psalm, um, we should feel a tension here, a bit of a problem that we see a God who's holy, who's set apart, who created and sustains everything. He's bringing order, um, contrasted with a people um, who are sinful, who are broken, um, who are not holy, who tend to not trust and believe in God. And then David asks us in verse 3, an important question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? So who shall be with God? Who can be with him? Who can stand with him? 
And then the second question I want to kind of insert into here is why does it matter? Why, why should we want to know who can be with God and why should we want to be with God ourselves? So I'm going to start with that question and then I'll, I'll jump to the who. So the first thing is that God's gifts are better than the world's gifts. John 10.10 10 says that Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. That again, Jesus didn't come to give us a bunch of rules to follow, um, but that God wants us to find joy and fulfillment in this life and for all eternity. And so God's laws, God's rules aren't meant to be seen as a fence. Brian's talked about this before, but we often see God's law as just this kind of boundary or fence where if we live in here, we're okay. We just don't want to get too close to the like sexual impurity fence or the drinking too much fence or the laziness fence. And so as long as we can kind of stay away from these boundaries, right, and stay here in the middle, we're fine. But the Bible talks about God's law as a fountain, to be seen as a fountain of living waters, as a spring, right? Not as a fence, not as just a boundary, not as a sign that says, watch out for falling rocks or trail closed or whatever. Um, but it's, it's meant to be seen as something that we consume, that we find life in, that nourishes us, not just a, a, a kind of a fence to be um, kind of stayed inside these bounds. And um, as I was reading this, I was reminded of this idea of a, of a spring. Has anyone here seen a spring, actually? Spring, probably. Um, I, I remember the first time that I saw a spring um, a few years ago. I was hiking in the Appalachian Mountains. We were, uh, my best bud from high school and I, were doing a three-day backpacking trip. And so about halfway through the third day, we started getting really low on water. We hadn't come across any streams or rivers to filter water from. So um, by the end of that day, as we were setting up camp, we were fresh out of water, and we were a little bit worried. Um, we, only had a, we were only a day from civilization, so we probably would have made it out alive. But we were still a bit worried and wanted to have dinner and wanted to be able to make dinner with water and, and you know, be hydrated and whatnot. So we set up camp and then set off to look for water, hiking around. Um, didn't find anything, didn't find anything, and then finally we see this little creek bed off in the distance, so we hike down to it, and we get down there, and it's, it's totally dry. We're super discouraged. We don't know what we're going to do. And then we see this little, like, murky puddle of water, which is maybe, like, as big as, like, what would fit in, your, in one hand. It's like half a cup of water. And kind of dismissed it at first, and then I thought, well, that's, if we can just get even a half a cup of water from that, it's better than nothing. It'll give us a couple sips each. And so um, we go over to the little puddle, and I've got this pump filter, and it has a hose that goes into the water, and you put a bottle on the, the filter. So I, I put the hose in the water, put a, put a bottle on, and start pumping. Some water starts coming through, and then it keeps filling and keeps filling, and I keep pumping, and it fills up this whole 32-ounce bottle of water, and then I grab another bottle, and I do this, and I fill up four or five full bottles of water. And I could probably tell the story in it like a God provided miraculously for us. But in reality, what was happening was this was a spring. So I didn't realize it, but this water wasn't being fed from the creek. It was just coming up from the ground. But it was a little spring of water, and it, it provided for us. It nourished us. It allowed us to have dinner and to, to be hydrated for the rest of our trip. And so this is what God's word, his law, his rules are meant to be seen as, as a fountain, as a, as a spring of water, something that nourishes us and give us, gives us life. People in Denver, just like people everywhere, are, are seeking for satisfaction. And we seek it in a lot of different ways. We find it in a lot of different ways in Denver. Denver's a, a great city. Um, we know that even though it's a little bit overcast today, when we wake up tomorrow, it's most likely going to be sunny again. We know the mountains are still going to be there. My favorite coffee shop is still going to be right down the street from my house. Um, and we, we generally love life here. I, I spent a year, just over a year, in Russia a while back. In Russia... Um, 
the stereotypes, at least from my perspective, are true. It's cold, it's gray, people aren't super friendly, um, and there's just not a whole lot of hope there. When you talk to people, there's not much hope for the future. Um, they, you know, they just kind of feel like they're stuck in life. In Denver, we don't, we don't have that. We find joy in all kinds of things, right? We love the mountains, we love to ski and hike, we love good coffee and good beer and good food and to hang out with friends. But often what we can do is make these things into, into gods in, a, in and of themselves. We can make these things into rivals um, of the one who actually brings true life and true satisfaction. In the gifts and the pleasure of this world, if void of God, uh, will always fail us. They'll never bring real joy. Um, they'll always leave us wanting more. Maybe not today, maybe not next year, um, but someday. Maybe it's the day we die. We realize um, that this doesn't bring true joy and true life. And I, I'm going to come back to that in a second, but I want to jump to the next point, which is that God is better than his gifts. So God's gifts are better than the world's, but also God is better than his gifts. And so I'll ask a rhetorical question. Why did Jesus die for us? What was accomplished in Jesus' death? And I think that generally we can accept, and you guys would accept that, um, for, at least for us, the implications of Jesus' death were that um, we're being saved from a life and an eternity of, of sin, right? Sin and, and death, so we're being saved out of that. But it's just as important to know what we're being saved to. So it's not, it's not enough to know what we're being saved out of only, um, but, but that doesn't just leave us neutral. We're being saved to something. And so if, for instance, if I save you from getting on a plane that I know is going to crash, and then I take you over here and put you on a bus that I know is going to crash, I haven't really saved you from anything, right? Just changed your situation a bit. Um, so it's really important for us to know what God, what Jesus is saving us to, not just what he's saving us from. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that, and this is, the, this is what he's saving us to, that he might bring us to God. So this is, the, this is the point of salvation. This is what we're being saved to, that we might be with God, that we might ascend his holy hill and stand with him. In a few weeks, we'll hear um, in Psalm 27, the psalmist say, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. So the beauty of the Lord far surpasses the pleasures of this world, anything we could attain here. Whether it's relationships or good food or alcohol, coffee, music, delight in our kids, delight in friends, anything that you find delight in, the beauty of God is better. Now, we have a book on the book table over there called God is the Gospel. It's one of my favorite books, and I would encourage you to pick it up if you don't have it, if you haven't read it. Um, And the author puts it this way. He says, when I say God is the Gospel, I mean that the highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel, without which no other gift would be good, is the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. There's a lot kind of packed into that statement. But basically saying that the, the ultimate good of the gospel, and without this, nothing else would matter. No other gift from God would even matter. And this thing is the glory of God in the face of Jesus revealed for our joy. And this concept is, I think, tough to understand for me and probably for a lot of you. Um, But our longing for and our satisfaction 
in the gifts of God, they have to come subsequent to our longing for and our satisfaction in God himself. So if Meg, where is Megan? I know she's in here somewhere. There she is, thanks. So if Megan gives me like a pack of, you know, a three pack of like white V-neck t-shirts for Christmas, which you would likely do, um, and I'm really excited because I need these t-shirts, this should turn my affections toward her, right? Not towards the t-shirts, even though she's giving me a good gift. And if she gave me an even better gift, if she was able to maybe buy me a brand new Eurovan, which they don't import, they haven't since 2003, but if she was able to get, get a brand new one and ship it over here and um, convert it to the emission standards of the United States, um, I can't imagine anything better. But that should turn my affections toward her. It should make me love her more, not make me, not put a stumbling block, block between my love uh, between my love and her, right? I shouldn't be enamored with the van more than I'm enamored with her. So I talked earlier about God establishing not only everything in the world, but how, how everything works. And he created us in such a way that only he could bring true joy and satisfaction in life. Um, that these things are found in knowing him and communing with him and trusting in him both in this life and for all eternity. And that when we do this, when we find our identity in him and kind of are able to turn away from ourselves to find hope in him, then we, be, we begin to be able to rightly enjoy his gifts. And so family and romance and money and work and bicycles and Eurovans, all this stuff become reflections of God's glory and not rivals to it. So the very same thing that be, can become an idol, that can become a God in our lives, um, when rightly seen, when we uh, are finding our hope and identity in Jesus, those things become reflections of his glory and not rivals to it. So we can find seamless joy both in God and his gifts. We see that every gift is from above and is intended to lift our eyes, lift our heads up to the giver of that gift. And then as we do this, all of life can become worship um, because as we go to our favorite restaurant or our favorite coffee shop or our favorite pub, as we see a sunset, as we enjoy life, um, we're enjoying God in the process. We're worshiping God. We see him as the giver of this gift. They aren't, they aren't things that take away from him, but they're things that add to our um, worship and our excitement of God. So God's gifts are better than the world's, and God is better than his gifts. Um, but now the question that David asks is still pressing, which is who will be with him? Um, that who can be with him? Who can stand with this God? David states it clearly. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So I want to break this down a bit. It says, he who has clean hands. This is an idea of not just exactly what you do with your hands, but it, it basically implies everything that you do with your life. So the things that you say, the things that you do, what you put your hands to, the ways you treat people, just any kind of outward action. He says, we have to have clean hands. Basically, moral integrity, moral perfection in all that we do. The second thing he says is we have to have a pure heart. So not just in what we do, but the motives behind that. Um, so we're, we're in respect to thoughts and motives, uh, Matthew, or yeah, Matthew tells us, uh, or in Matthew, in the book of Matthew, Jesus tells us um, that hating someone in your heart is equivalent to murder, that Looking upon someone who's not your husband or wife lustfully is equivalent to adultery. This is the idea here that anything, not just of our outward actions, but what's in our heart matters as well. And so are our motives pure? In everything we do, is there any selfishness or deceit? 
um, any false motives? Are we doing everything out of love for God, love for other people? The third thing I want to draw out is, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And this statement um, is basically talking about worship, what we lift our soul to, what we lift our affections to. And so um, this idea of not lifting our affections to anything that is false, anything but God. Um, and so daily, we are all um, worshiping something. We're all lifting our souls to something. We're all lifting our affections to something God created us as worshipers, created us ultimately to worship him. Um, yet every day we tend to, to look to other things for joy and satisfaction. We tend to worship and orient our lives around other things. So a question, are you, are you consistently, constantly in awe and in wonder and in perfect worship of God? And so in order to be with God, David tells us, to receive righteousness and blessing from him, all we need are clean hands and a pure heart to live in perfect worship of him, to never find hope or joy or life in anything above him. And this is the standard that he gives us. Um, David's pretty clear here, right? This isn't a vague passage. David asks the question and then answers it very clearly. And so who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his place? Who can enter into God's presence? I know based on this standard, I can't. It's not me. And I doubt um, anyone else they're being honest, could, could say they could meet the standard either. But Hebrews 4 tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So there is one. There's one who has clean hands. There's one who has a pure heart. Um, there's one who's never lifted his soul to what is false. So look with me at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. So again, who can stand with God? Jesus, the King of glory, can't. The king who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And for all of us who trust in him, for all who put our hope in him, his clean hands become our clean hands. His pure heart becomes our pure heart. We receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. So we see that Jesus is the king of glory. Jesus is strong and mighty. Jesus is mighty in battle. Jesus is the Lord of hosts or armies. So this is no mere kind of meek, mild picture of Jesus. Um, we see him as, as the king, as the one who's actively defeated sin and death, who has no rivals, who has no threats. Um, and as he enters in the into the presence of the Father, um, we are able to lift our heads lift our heads, and even the gates are commanded to lift their heads as he enters, as he enters, as, as he ascends his holy hill and enters the presence of God, and we're able to stand and lift our heads, not because of anything we've done, not because of our righteousness, but because of him, who he is, because of his goodness and his righteousness. And in trusting in him and his righteousness, we can, again, with our heads lifted high, we can follow him into the presence of God. Um, we can stand with God forever.
and experience joy in life, um, satisfaction like we never imagined possible. Let me pray for us. Lord, you tell us that you make known to me, you make known to us the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, I pray we would believe this. Lord, I pray you would make us to believe this. Lord, that you are better. Um, That in your presence there is fullness of joy. Uh, Things that we strive for in every other area of our lives, Lord, you provide Lord, I pray we would be a people, that Park Church would be a people um, who are marked not by um, our morals, not by um, following the right rules and not doing the wrong things, Lord, but pray we'd be marked by a people who, um, Lord, who are dependent on you, who come to, to, to the fountains of living water, Lord, and drink, and that we desire to follow you and to follow your ways because we believe you and we love you and we want... Um, we don't, we don't want to do what is false. We don't want to do what brings death, Lord, but we want um, the blessing that comes from you. Yes, Lord, give us lives dependent on you. Lord, we're thankful that you've made a way for us to know you. We're thankful that um, Jesus came, that we might have life and have it abundantly in you. Lord, we pray in his name. Amen.